Coming up on today's episode of the Real Lives Podcast. I just watched this bloke with all my mates at Durham screaming and shouting at the TV as he kicked at the winning drop goal for England to win the first World Cup. And then two weeks later, three weeks later, I'm training one-on-one with him in a gym. And I've yet to find anything that gives you the same adrenaline buzz, emotional high and emotional low that elite level sport gives you. And then when the reality hit of like, okay, it's all over Red Rover, that was then... Yeah, massively destabilizing because of the fact that like, all my life, 25 years of my life, had been surrounded by this sport. It suddenly becomes um, addictive. Like You become very addicted to that, like oh, and needy of these people to tell you that. I, I'd been accustomed to being very good at something and that it was my... It was my identity. It was everything. It was it was every every single part of me, really. As you can see by the dog, and the different background and the the fleece, I am no longer in Australia. I've moved back to the UK. Took the decision to do that. Um, wasn't one I took lightly, but yeah, needed to be done. But yeah, on today's episode of the Real Life Podcast, I have on former England sevens captain Ollie Phillips. Now, in this episode, it's a really interesting one because we talk about his career. How he, you know, he grew up playing rugby and never really thought he would be the level he was at. And you know, playing with players like Johnny Wilkinson and how, like, the story from when he was watching the England final to then weeks later playing with Johnny Wilkinson himself, um, which you can imagine is probably a massive mind fuck uh, at that kind of age. And then yeah, we talk about his career ending injury, how he decided to put his energy from obviously playing the game of rugby and coaching it into moving into coaching businesses and coaching uh, people and also into these extreme challenges that he's done like the most northern point the most northern game of rugby and also the clipper challenge which was a boat race around the world and things like that so yeah and we'll we also have a conversation about how these challenges changed his perspective on um what the meaning of them was and how meeting different people along the way has changed that for him. So yeah, if you enjoy this episode, uh, check out Ollie down in the description below. You can also check out Optimus Performance, his company. Dude, sit down. God. You can also check out his company down in the description below. And also, if you want to support the podcast and support this little man, Bruce, then feel free to like, subscribe and share the podcast with whoever. So yeah, enjoy this episode with Ollie Phillips. Okay, Ollie, welcome onto the show. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, giving your time for this interview. So just to start off with, I do the same with everyone. Tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, thanks, Ethan. Good, good to be here, mate. My name's Ollie Phillips. Uh, my background is in, in sport. I was 12 years as a sort of professional rugby player. Uh, I was within the England sort of infrastructure for 11 years. I was captain for England at sevens for about six of those Um and since then, I've gone on to do a sort of series of challenges, sail around the world, a world record on Everest, two world records on Everest, even one on the one at the North Pole, cycle across America, uh, and I now run a sort of leadership behavioural change business consultancy called Optimist Performance. So that's me. Amazing. Um, yeah, you've got quite the CV to say the least. Um, but let's go back towards the start. So what led you into that career in professional rugby and how did you get there initially? Oh, wow. Um, how did I get into professional rugby? Well, I'll be honest, I was probably like every other, you know, kid or whatever, you know, the parents taking them down to their local mini rugby club. 
I was useless at football, two left feet. So they had to throw me in a rugby field. I was quite boisterous. So instead of beating my brother up, they'd let a few other people beat me up. And, you know, and that's where it all started at the age of four, going down to sort of Hove Mini Rugby Club. And, and I loved, I loved the team environment. I loved the dynamic of, you know, being competitive. I love trying to, trying to win and get the best out of yourself, but also it not being a, in not being on your own, you needed you needed the collective buy-in of everyone to do it. So I, I reckon, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but no, reflecting on it, that was definitely sort of what was fueling me as a kid. All the way through, you know, once you get to 14, 15, you start to play representative rugby through your county, for your division, and then you then you move into England under 16s and England under 18s at that point in time. And it was only when I was probably 17, 18 that I started to get the idea and the concept that maybe I could do this as a job because Harlequins had come in. They'd asked me to be part of their academy and their under 21 setup. I was, I was getting absolute peanuts, but it was like, you know, they were giving, they were giving us like two grand for the year or, something, or five grand for the whole year. But it was amazing. And I was getting paid just to play rugby. And, um, and it sort of fuel started from there. Really. That's, that's where it began. And, Looking back on it, I, I, I mean, it wasn't a great day, to be honest, but it was probably quite fortuitous and I'm quite grateful for it now. But I messed up my A-levels, basically. I didn't get what I thought I was going to get. I was meant to get. I was too busy sort of playing rugby, chasing girls or trying to chase girls um, and just lost lost attention and lost focus, really. And as a result of that, I, I it forced me into a decision of like, okay, I need to go to university, really. I need to... I need to get something behind me that if rugby all goes wrong, I've, I've got something there. So I went to Durham. Fortunately, they, they took me in, even though my A-levels were not quite what they needed to be. They took me in. Rugby probably helped me on that side of it. And so I did my degree at, up at Durham University, which is a great maturing ground for me. And when I was there, fortuitously or thankfully, Newcastle Falcons came in after about a year and said, look, we want you to come up and train with us. And then that's when I joined them and started training with the likes of, you know, Johnny Wilkinson and everyone else like that. So that's how it all came about. And and I signed my first contract with them in halfway through my second year at Durham. Crazy. The, I like What I like about rugby is the ability to go to university and have that experience. Because I worked at Elip for Elan Trailfinders for about three months uh, during the pre-season of 2021. And what I noticed was the amount of lads that were in union were able to get an education as sort of that fallback for them, just in case something didn't work out within rugby. So for yourself, where you, you know your focus was solely university and then Newcastle Falcons then came along, how did you then manage your time at university as well as training with them full-time and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say you know, sports probably changed. I mean, it still is the same, but it's definitely more pressure on younger lads now and, and younger girls now to, to to step away earlier, if you like, from formal education, which is a real shame because for me, it was pretty transformational for me, university and just have, being in that environment and having the option. It was the first time I'd lived on my own with my mates. You had to you know cook for myself, eat, you know, Clean, you know, look after myself, just you know, but still had the 
support structure of friends, university, and obviously parents that I, I could really lean on if I, if I needed to. Um, yeah, when I, I mean, how I managed it, if I'm honest, I probably managed it quite badly because I just love rugby. So any opportunity to train and go up to Newcastle, I was doing it. But what was great about university was you had lectures, so that gave a little bit of focus. But then you studied in and around the time when it, whenever it worked for you, right? Lectures were not that frequent or that arduous. And as a result, I could, I could make up for the time lost. Um, by going to training and being in that sort of environment with the Falcons. And um, and because it was close, it was only like 20 minutes up the road, that was, that really helped as well. And you know, Durham to Newcastle was a relatively easy commute. In that time at Newcastle Falcons, where you then become part of the first team, start training with them, and you're in, in and around the likes of Johnny Wilkinson and New Albia, what was that like for you mentally to be around these, you know, pinnacle of the game players and you're just starting out your career did you utilize it as a driving force to educate yourself on the game tactically and stuff like that or did you sort of struggle with it initially before then building into it i probably struggled with it at the, at the, at the beginning to be honest i mean i was totally overawed by the fact that i was there you know i just watched this bloke with all my mates at durham screaming and shouting at the tv as he kicked at the winning drop goal for England to win the first World Cup. And then two weeks later, three weeks later, I'm training one-on-one -on -one with him in a gym and, you know, people are paparazzi outside and he's, you know, it's all a bit of a, bit of a whirlwind. So that, that was, a, as a 19, 20-year-old lad, if that just being in that environment of being with proper, proper blokes, like men, the big units, really experienced you know most of the arenas that I've been in whether that was school or university I was sort of one of the best or better players whereas you know that definitely wasn't the case at at the Falcons you know I was the young punk that you know had to earn his stripes and everything else like that so that was great but also quite challenging mm. but um but yeah I mean it, it was awesome from the fact I just learned learned loads from them and watching them. The only thing that was, I would say, frustrating as a, yeah, as, as somebody in, involved in the game was that I, you know, I had, I'd grown up most of my life playing a lot of rugby, you know, every week, maybe playing two games a weekend sometimes, or at least at uni, you play like on a Wednesday and then maybe play county or something on the weekend, and, you know, almost two games a week sometimes. And then when you get to professional level as a young lad, you know, your opportunity to play is miles less. You know, you, you don't play it at all, really. You're, you're, you know, you're desperate for an opportunity and that opportunity doesn't come very often. And if you don't take the opportunity, you know, you have a bad game or you're injured at the time or ill or whatever else, the, um, it's, it takes it bloody ages before it comes back around again. So, When you got to, obviously... Uh one of the highest points of your career, you became captain of England Sevens. And one thing that I was sort of thinking about in the build-up to this interview was about leadership and how, whether it's nature or is it nurture. So for yourself, do you, were you always a leader throughout school and throughout when you were playing rugby as a kid? Or was that something that came later on through the things that you learned from the likes of Johnny Wilkinson and all these other amazing players who you played with? 
Um, yeah, I think, look, I, I mean, I was, I was lucky. I, I got into the England setup early, like six months into my career. Yeah, I'd, I'd signed in the July and then by the December, I got called up to the England squad and I was, and I was going away with them to Dubai and South Africa after six months. So it was a little bit of a baptism of fire. I was definitely, you know, living in cuckoo land a little bit and living the dream, trying not, you know, trying not to let anybody sort of realise that I didn't have a bloody clue what was going on and I was a bit overawed and excited by it all. But yeah, I, I think my the, the beauty of it was that at that point in time, England was an incredible environment to be in. The people were you know, amazing in terms of personnel and you know I was playing alongside the, like young players like Hugo Monnier, Matt Tate, Nick Duncombe, these sorts of players that were England stars of the future and then some really established stars both of 15s and of 7s so Ben Gollings and Simon Amor on the 7s front but then Henry Paul, Pat Sanderson, Pete Richards all players that you know played a lot of times for England so for me, that was a mm. that was an awesome experience, and you know you learn so much. Just I think I'm a massive believer in that. If you want to get better, surround yourself with with better people, basically people that are better than you. But so take, just taking it back a little bit. Um, so do you were you always that kind of leader figure within a squad when you were younger, or was that something that came later on in your career? Yeah, I think the leadership side of it all. I, I mean, I was. I, I had been like, you know, captain of my school, captain of my county. Um, and, I, and I'd always sort of reveled in it. But I'd be honest, I think the reason I, well, I don't know, if, I'm, maybe it wasn't, but at the time I found at schoolboy level in particular, you know, often it was this, the kind of like best player that got given the captaincy, not necessarily the best leader. Um, so my lead, my leadership journey was rapid and then and, you know, learning from some you know, incredible role models and in Newcastle there was probably you know there's lots but there, you know, two that would stand out one was obviously Wilco and, and him as a captain his leadership style probably wasn't mine it didn't resonate with me that that much because he was very much about like just demonstrating his commitment his dedication and his him being totally focused on on playing the game you know, and, and just being the best player in the world, that was that was you know, his way of leadership. Didn't say a lot, just just led by doing rather than by words. And then it contrasts that probably a guy called Matt Burke, who won the World Cup with Australia, a fullback, an incredible player, but also had for me had got it right off the field as well. Like he was very professional but equally knew how to sort of relax and have a good time, build rapport, you know, have, have, have a good level of sort of banter, if you like, with, with the players. And, the, and I felt like that was probably more my style of leadership. I'm much more sort of somebody that needs to be, I need to feel good. I need to feel good about my team, my, myself, the game. So, um, and Berkey was more, more aligned with that. So, so it was great to get that sort of exposure from early on, um, and then and then as I got into more and more different environments, whether that was with England or going over to Stade Francais in Paris, Gloucester, you know, really learning 
you know, uh, how, how different people approach things, how they manage things, how they led things. But I guess my biggest learning, if I'm really honest, came after I was playing because my perspective on leadership was very tunnel vision. You know, if you think about it, I was leading a group of men all the same age, roughly, all the same marital, roughly meaning most the same marital status, and you had this carrot of playing for England. So if you, if you couldn't lead that environment, I mean, you were pretty pretty rubbish really if i'm honest before we get on to the more of that leadership side style stuff and post-career i want to get on to when you moved to stade, stade francais and how that sort of altered your way of approaching things because i can imagine the cultural differences through being there the language barriers and things like that you would have had to have altered a few things in the way that you presented yourself played the game and things like that so how hard did you find that at first and how long did it take you to settle in? I mean, I did. I, I found it, I mean, daunting, but massively exciting. Um, I love a bit of variety. I, you know, I quite like being a bit uncomfortable in my environment. So, uh, so I, was, I was loving it. And obviously you had the added interest. of you, you know, You're living in Paris, an amazing city, super exciting, different culture. And at the time, Stade Francais were probably the biggest club in the world at that, at that point. So, you know, playing for one of the biggest teams in Europe, it's just a, just an epic opportunity and adventure. But it, it, it was lonely. Like the first six months were a bit challenging, but I was fortunate enough that I live, I was living with a bloke called James Haskell, who you know, is a total nutcase, but you know, a, an incredible personality, a great bloke. And, and, exactly what I needed really at the time, just a, a wingman and somebody that, you know, I, I didn't have to do it on my own with because he was there. He was feeling the same way. He was going through the same experience. So yeah, that was a, that was a brilliant experience. That was an amazing two years living with him and having that sort of fun. And it, in answer to your question, it probably took me about six months to crack the, the language. And once you crack the language, that opens so many doors in terms of your ability to then culturally immerse yourself and integrate yourself with people and get on well with, with everyone around you. It's really interesting because like a lot of foot, like I'm a big football fan and you see a lot of footballers who may come over to England and, you know, say they speak Spanish, that's their uh, first language. And it's crazy how the, language barriers the cultural differences can affect performance on the pitch obviously through missing home and not being able to communicate properly with teammates and things like that but I can imagine in your case there was obviously I'm James Haskell there and probably a few others who spoke English did that make it a bit more comfortable in terms of getting in, immersed in the playing style that they had and the, the sort of qualities they were after on the pitch and that kind of thing I mean, look, it helped a couple of yeah, it, it, like it helped to have a couple of wingmen in Hask, Hugo Southwell, who else do we have? Simon Taylor, Tom Palmer, you know, English guys that were going through the same experiences we were going through. Of like, well, Simon Taylor could, but like, couldn't really speak in, couldn't speak the language, had no bloody clue what was going on in training. You know, so that that was helpful. I mean, because everything was in French and all the rest of it, but. But part of the beauty of it all was that too, right? It was a different cultural way of doing things. 
the club was ridiculous. I mean, the fact that if you like the playing in pink jerseys was just the tip of the iceberg, just in terms of how ridiculous and colourful it was as a club and as a place it was awesome. So I think, you know, that, you know, yes, it was daunting and having those guys alongside you, who you could all sort of suffer in the, in the same situation was good, but the communication element was definitely a, a barrier to performance, like as you spoke about. So I don't think it necessarily unsettled me in terms of like my ability to, and my enthusiasm to play and to, you know, to get better and to deliver my skill set. But, you know, my ability just to communicate with another player that spoke, didn't speak any English and then get to understand like where I'm, like how I typically run a line or how I might stay out a bit longer than what they're used to or, I want the ball early or whatever it might be. I don't know, right? But that was hard because you just, you know, you, you do something, they throw the ball, it hit you in the face and then everyone screams shout at each other, but no one knew what anyone was talking about, right? So so, so that was that was challenging at the beginning, but you get a bit of, you know, broken English, broken French at some point that everyone sort of gets the gist. And, and as I say, once I learned the language, it probably took me six months. That's when that's when things started to, to change and, and really go positive. And then I want to get on to the, the, you being forced into retirement because I think it's a really interesting story because I read an article in the Daily Mirror which, where you said, every injury I had, my reaction was, tell me what rehab to do, what weight to lift, and I'll do it 50 times better, and I'll come back three months earlier than you think. But for this, there was nothing. So talk me through the injury that ended your career and how you had to shift that mentality from I'm going to be the best at this rehab for this given time and I'm going to come back faster than you think to then not having that opportunity to come back at all. Yeah, I mean, in a word, in, in a few words, it was brutal. I, I couldn't... But the injury itself was... Um, well, it has never been properly diagnosed, but I was, I was being given multiple theories of what it might be. Um, so the, the, I guess the best one that I sort of cling on to is that I I had da- damaged or severed the nerve in my calf. Um, so the neural pathway from my back down through the, my hamstrings and calf was compromised. And, and every time I tried to overexert on it, it would it would cause the nerve to go crazy and then my muscles would go. So, but I, but I never had a official diagnosis and I had probably two or three different medical opinions and everyone was saying different things. And that was really tough just to understand like, okay, what, you know, to that point, my mentality of like, well, tell me what I need to do and then I'll do it. And nobody could tell me what to do. And then there were like two or three different people telling me what to do. I try all of them and none of them would work. And then when the reality hit of like, okay, it's all over Red Rover, that was then yeah, massively destabilizing because of the fact that like all my life, 25 years of my life, had been surrounded by this sport, you know, whether it was as a four-year-old all the way up to a 29-year-old, you know, I I'd been accustomed to being very good at something, and that it was my it was my identity. It was everything. It was it was every every single part of me really, and I didn't realize that at the time. But you know, I was 
I, I was almost a bit in denial at the beginning, probably for about two years, where I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I just need to have a break. I need to go and do something else. I need to do this, I need to do that, whatever it is. But, um, but the reality was that it, it was never going to get, well, it was never going to improve enough for me to be able to tolerate the, the level of impact and intensity or whatever that was going to be required from playing professional rugby. Yeah, I said it was the training really that was the challenge. I could probably play games, but you obviously, you know, it's only so long that you can actually sort of just turn up and play a game. And I just wasn't able to sustain the workload of of being a professional athlete. How long was it before you realised that you were having this identity crisis that, you know, because people who retire naturally of age or because of they may not find it as challenging anymore they kind of uh, they become okay with the process of retirement and finding something new to do but when you're forced into it and you have the identity crisis it can probably be a very overwhelming for you so how long was it before you realized you were having this almost identity crisis because i've heard you say as well when you then started working for pwc you would always identify yourself as hi i'm ollie I played rugby or I'm Ollie, I play rugby. And it was never I'm Ollie and I'm the creative director of PwC. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, oh, wow. I mean, the whole process was probably about four years from start to finish. finish. I mean, it was, um, you know, there was, it was obviously interlaced with different things going on at the same time, but I would say four years is the, uh, is yeah, three to four years of the realization of like, shit, like, if this isn't actually getting any better, this is I'm not I'm I'm not going to be who I thought I was. I'm not going to be involved in in sport anymore and all the rest of it. How come you didn't go for a coaching down the coaching route if you were so heavily tied to that identity of rugby? And how come you went down that corporate route and then obviously now into your own? Uh, being self-employed through Optimus Performance? I think it's probably a bit of, I mean, I say now desperation shouldn't really drive innovation, but I was desperate at that point in time. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be or what my next steps were going to be. So anybody really that could help me or would show me a bit of love or show me a bit of interest, it, you know, I would do it. So, you know, you know, so as a result, I think I, my focus became more on just and I realise this is a behavioural trait. My, my my interest, if you like, became on how do I get approval and support and recognition from people, anybody, anybody that would sort of show me some form of uh, love, it would then grab my attention. So when PwC came in and when they were like, "Oh, we want to make you a director, we want to do this," I didn't I didn't really think about is it actually something I want to do? Is it going to be good for my skill set yeah nothing really I was just like oh they think I can be great they think they they're telling me all these great things that I could be you know they'll support me they'll nurture me they'll you know they'll, they'll massage my ego blah 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 I'm going to be a director of a big company etc etc like this is this is who I want to be this is who I need to be but you know, that was a load of old nonsense to be honest so when you did come to retire and you were having this, you know, 
by the sounds of it, very long identity crisis of who you wanted to be. And then starting that role as a creative director, what was it that then led you down this route of Optimist Performance and taking what you'd learned on the rugby field and also in your later in your corporate career and moving that forward into teaching others how to be better leaders, how to improve a workforce and things like that? I think, I mean, when I, when I retired from player rugby, I went and did a load of challenges in the sort of, if you like, fueling that need for recognition or whatever. So I went and sailed around the world. I went and set a world record at the North Pole. I went and cycled across America, set another two world records up in, in, on Everest. And I realised that they actually, the in, I mean, yes, I love a physical challenge and I wanted to do all that, but the real interest and the real passion point for me was like overcoming a challenge with collective, a collective group and often an eclectic collective group. And I really reveled in the, like, we're going to go do something extraordinary that not a lot of people have ever done before. There's a lot of intrepidation. There's a lot of nervousness and anxiety and whatever else around it all. But if, if, if we can do this, if we can pull this off, then it's going to be an incredible achievement. And for me, I, it wasn't, I mean, I don't get me wrong, I did enjoy the achievement side of it, but I much more enjoyed the, like, wow, we're all coming together and we're pulling off the impossible here. And that, that was really, that was the passion point for me. That's the thing I realised is like, I really enjoy bringing a group of people together, helping them figure out how they solve the impossible how and how they do it as a, and become the really, collective force and it was all about teams it was also about comms it was about leadership it was about problem solving about culture and and that's where optimist was born the first one that you did was the the clip around the world yacht race if i'm right in saying that was the first challenge you did post rugby career right yeah so i listened to another interview that you did and it was quite interesting that you probably more so from it being ingrained in you through rugby that you know all about winning it's that winning mentality we need to win every game win every tournament what have you and you went into that saying that you you were like right we need to win this we need to do this but then there was people there who were like well no I'm not in it to win it I'm here to like what I think one woman you said had she was there for her husband to spread his ashes around all the different oceans of the world so what did that did that almost help to build the philosophies of optimist performance in that kind of thing where not everything's about winning it's about building a culture and a collective yeah just i mean that was part of my i think i mentioned a bit earlier on around the leadership piece but that that was the moment that i realized that leadership was a hell of a lot more than what i probably originally perceived it to be and you know, people moving people move for different reasons and whatever else that that became you know, ever present and and very significant for me when I was doing the clipper, and that was the first time that I was like, "Wow, okay, I'm going to need to adapt and change and mould my style here because, you know, to your point, that lady she didn't give a monkey's about whether we won or not won or whether we were competitive and all the rest of it, and you know, and, and there I was sort of harping on about how important that that was and how we needed to be focused on all that and blah 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 and it, it wasn't relevant for them right so 
so I think that's the that was the big learning part for me, which is like, oh, actually, I, I need to do something very, very different here. And in order to make sure that I win their trust, I get their support, and you know, I help I help them achieve the things that they want, and at the same time, they help me achieve the things I want. From that, you obviously went on to do the Arctic Rugby Challenges, which are, I'm super interested in these in terms of, so you did the 100-mile trek to the Magnetic North Pole and then played the, was it the, the most northern game of rugby in the world? And then the Everest one, so the highest game of touch rugby and highest game of full contact. What about these, why have you gone for these extremely cold or high-altitude challenges? What is it about them that made you sort of draw yourself towards them? Yeah, I mean, I- I'll be honest, it was more the, it was like more the lunacy of it all, if that makes sense, just the sort of like, okay, this is ridiculous, but it would be incredible to do it. But coupled with, I mean, at the time, I'll be honest, at the time, the decision was probably fueled more by ego of like, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this and get a world record because it's going to be like adding to brand Ollie or whatever else. That was definitely probably at the beginning, not all of them, but definitely the beginning. And and then I think there was a realization for me of like, you know what, these, these things don't, don't really mean anything. You know, like a Guinness world record is great, but it just sits on the wall, you know, collects a bit of dust. Nobody actually does anything with it. The, the key is the, the magic is, the process, the journey, and then the legacy afterwards. So, you know, what do I mean by that? It's the like the problem solving, the coming together, the collective unity of everyone trying to figure out how we overcome these hurdles, how we problem solve, how we deal with all the little intricacies of the ups and downs that happen during that process. Then there is the like achieving it in itself, like the sense of achievement and sharing of that with everyone around you and then it's the good that it does afterwards you know the trust that it's built with so many people you know, i can still see my crew from the clipper race that i did 10 years ago right, and still have an amazing conversation or share a, a brilliant story or just you know it's just a look you know like as if as if it was only yesterday that you were together again because you've done something that not many people have done and you've overcome some significant hurdles that you didn't think you probably could. And the, the outcome is that you achieve something extraordinary together. So out of all these challenges that you've done over the past 10 years, what was the most influential moment out of all of them that has sort of helped solidify your philosophies in what you do now? Oh, great. I mean, I mean, the Clipper was definitely one that's up there, right? I mean, I would say that was right up there just because of the, the length of it. You know, 11 months at sea. Yeah, and I was totally out of my comfort zone. I never sailed before. You were isolated for months at a time with people you didn't know in some of the most hostile and adverse environments you could imagine. So I'd say that, you know, that undoubtedly was a big one. But 
but it's difficult. For, I'd probably say it's difficult for me to pick them all out. But some of my my favourite is probably in Cycle Across America, just because, if you like, from a, a relationship perspective, it just totally confirmed or reaffirmed the. I did it with my wife, or I did it with my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife, but it, it did it. It just strengthened our relationship even more than it had ever done anything it had ever done before. So I think. I think that was probably the most significant for me in terms of my life, but but Clipper in terms of just my overall philosophy. That one on your wife there, to, in terms of the cycle across America, what was it about it that reaffirmed your you know that the relationship sort of thing? Uh, I, th- I think you know just going through the scenario and the situation. Like, Cycling across America is 3,200 miles. You're cycling continually. You're pretty knackered. You're having to just get as much food on whenever you can. You're na- like, the elements are against you. It's chucking it down with rain. You know, you're under a time constraint. You, you, you've got to constantly keep pushing. There's a reliance on each other to constantly keep taking things forward. You might get lost, et cetera, et cetera. There's loads of challenges or things that can pop up that can that can cause that yeah that can cause maybe ructions in or challenge within the relationship and yeah and we never had that ever really it was I'll be honest we just we just smiled the whole way through um, and it was yeah it was a, and it was an incredible experience good enough for you and. And as a result, it it just it brought us closer than you know than 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 forced us apart. If that makes sense. And then the Clipper race as well. I find that fascinating because uh, you said was it five and a half weeks before the race you were told, well you were asked to take part in it. So what about why on earth? Because most people would turn that down and say, oh I don't have enough training, I don't have this. So what was it about it that made you turn around and go, you know what, I'm going to give this a good fucking go? Yeah, I mean, great question. Do you mean what, in terms of all my challenges or marriage or what, or like? No, just so for the Clipper race, because obviously you only had five and a half weeks from the moment you were asked to take part to the start point. What about it? Yeah, well, as I say, that one, to be honest with you, was driven initially probably more out of desperation I mean, it was definitely, right? I think my, the context in my life at the time was I was 29. I thought I was going to the, go, go to the Olympics. I thought I was going to be captain for GB. All these things that I thought were going to be the reality for me in my world now weren't. That, that, that changed. Uh, and that was pretty unsettling. And at the time, I was definitely heavily fueled by my own ego and you know, and owning self-importance. And I think that, I, I think I viewed the Clipper as an extension of that. I viewed the Clipper at the beginning as like, I'll just go away for 11 months. I'll be the sort of, it's going to be a big PR piece about me doing it. I'll still remain front and centre. I'll have a year off my leg. I'll come back. I'll get fit again and I'll go back to the Olympics. And I even had the thought that my first sailing port was going to be Rio. And my last port for my, Rugby career would be Rio for the Olympics. 
So I was, it was a little bit of delusions of grandeur, if I'm honest. But it was also like, when I really assess it, I was desperate. You know, I was desperate for somebody to still make me feel loved, to still recognize and praise me and, and you know, give me all the feelings that I got when I played in front of 80,000 people or the coach picked me or whatever else. So I, I was desperate for that. And it was just fortuitous that I was just very, very lucky that it turned out to be a masterstroke in terms of like in my own future career and all the rest of it. Like that wasn't the intended consequence, but I was just I'm very grateful that that's what it was. Do you still almost suffer with that now in terms of seeking that dopamine effect of the 80,000 fans that are watching you do the thing you're good at? Or have you now gone to a point where you just appreciate the process and things rather than the outcome? Yeah, I think I've definitely got, well, I'm matured or whatever else. I, I don't think you, I've yet to find anything that gives you the same adrenaline buzz, emotional high and emotional low that elite level sport gives you, you know, playing in front of 80,000 people, winning or losing a big game. You know, those ups and downs are just massive. They're just enormous and they're addictive. They're really, really addictive. Um, so I think, yeah, I think from my perspective, I've not, I think as I've got older, you know, I think I've realized that, you know, that, that world is not, it's not feasible anymore, if you like, for me as on a, on a practical level. But, but I also, yeah, I think I've, I've tried to temper my my needs. If you, I, I, the best, I've never done a drug in my life, and I'm not a drinker and I'm not a smoker, so I can't really talk about addiction on that sort of side. But I can 100% say to you that I was addicted to that need, that need to feel recognised, loved, rewarded, appreciated, to feel like it was an, almost like a narcissistic need and that was unhealthy that was very unhealthy and it drove me in other behaviors and other decision making when i'd finished sport that were not going to be positive in my life in the long run you know, they just it wasn't going to work out well and the adventures and everything else like that they were obviously now in hindsight healthy you know healthy because there were physical challenges they were great they were also incredibly risky. You know, they came with a massive load of risk. You know, often Guinness World Records are there often because they're really difficult to do um, and no one's ever done them. So, yeah, so as a result, I've, you know, I've put myself in a lot of danger and risk and whatever else. And I sort of continue to do that because I get a bit of a buzz out of it. But my drivers are now more about like the process and the journey and the the adventure with people rather than the outcome. What do you think led to that addictive tendency towards the emotional highs and lows? I think originally it was all my childhood. Of, of not an, I say, I'll say like a neglected childhood. It wasn't a neglected childhood in, in, in the sense that I, I, you know, I, don't, I was abused or anything like that, but I, there were definitely things in my childhood that I needed like I don't know, love and attention affection 
from my, my dad in particular that, that just wasn't present. And as a result, rugby became the, the conduit for that, the crutch for that, because lots of people in, in the rugby environment did. You know, my coaches, other parents in England, my teammates, because I was good at it, they were like heaping praise on me and I'd get validation because I'd get picked and I'd get, you know, and then you go into professional environment and there's 10,000 people in the crowd, then there's 30,000 people, then there's 80,000 people, then there's the press and the media and everybody telling you you're great. And when you were sort of coming as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid where you're like, oh, I can't, I can't get my dad to tell me that I'm great or that he's proud of me or anything like that, it suddenly becomes... Um, addictive like you become very addicted to that like and needy of these people to tell you that and that that becomes unhealthy and especially when it then goes and you lose it you know you're not you lose this professional sport you lose rugby then it becomes that addiction becomes problematical because you can't can't get it anymore on a rugby field or from 80,000 people or from an England selector so you have to go elsewhere and some people get it, well, wherever you go, I think addiction's not necessarily healthy. So some people get it from drugs, alcohol, booze, uh, you know, what, I'm sorry, the same thing or, you know, whatever, I know, addicted to something. And, and mine, because mine was an emotional response, mine was relationships, like I, be, I just became addicted to, you know, women telling me that I was brilliant. And that wasn't very healthy because I couldn't just have one, I needed like, 10. It's interesting as well that you now are self-employed because even when you so when you're working within a, a you know corporate business where there's you know a lot of employees people still give you that gratification of praise and those different you know th those things that make you feel good but when you're self-employed there's no one there to do that because you're the, you're the boss of the entire place if that makes sense. So Correct, yeah. did you find that that also helped being, being self-employed instead of working for someone else that helped sort of get away from that addictive tendency? Uh, I mean, good question. I, 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 I honestly don't know. If anything, it's, it's, it's probably more destabilizing on a, like a personal level because you know, people turn to you for the answers and you, and you don't really have the answers. Um, so, so I think figuring it out on yourself is a bit more sort of lonely in existence, but like I enjoy the challenge, if that makes sense. I enjoy the challenge, but I don't, I don't necessarily being run, running my own business and having people and staff and everything else work for me. I think, I think given my, if you like, propensity or, you know, propensity to be to need people to validate or like me or whatever else from a just a conditioned behavior. I think that can be challenging as running your own business because you, you, know, you sometimes have got to make pretty tough calls about like, you know, do we have enough money and do we, do we have to fire people and whatever else? And you know, that, that is a challenge when your psyche is geared towards like, I don't want people to not like me type of thing. So, so that that was definitely a bit of a challenge um oh it is a challenge in in my business all the time so in terms of optimist performance 
you focus a lot on leadership now. So having spent time as England captain and leading these different expeditions and these different races, what makes a good leader both on the pitch and off the pitch? That, I mean, that's how long you got, but I think, I think the most important <laughs> part of it is, yeah, I think the most important part of it is being authentic, you know, being authentic and being true to yourself. So people will see through pretty quickly if you're, if you're being disingenuous or you're not being very authentic or you're not being yourself. So I think you, you need to be like unashamedly you for starters. I think you need to be able to have a really you know, clear and honest lines of communication with people and that you're really willing to actually listen and properly listen. Like the, there's a difference between sort of like, yeah, I've, you know, I've listened to them and actually hearing them, like hearing what people say and understanding what they need. And you know, if you really want to achieve your goals and they're really, really important to you, but you need the buy-in of other people around you and their support and ultimately their delivery, you need to invest a lot of time in understanding what makes them move and what motivates them. And if you can then feed and nurture that and support that, they'll become advocates and champions of you for, for life. And as a result, they'll go to the end of the earth for you. And that's really, that's really only when leadership gets tested, right? Is when, when the proverbial hits the fan or when there's a problem or, and, and you need to do something and you, you need, you need something to happen that maybe is going to be a bit uncomfortable and a bit, you know, a, a bit unsettling for people, but they, but they, they go with it and they, they trust in the process, they trust in the plan. And that's when, that's when I find it's the most sort of effective. And then just a couple more questions, because I know we're short on time now. So throughout this whole interview, the main, the, the main thing that stood out is that you enjoy being out of your comfort zone. You enjoy pushing yourself out of that comfort zone. And I think now more than ever, people struggle with, you know, we just strive to be within it rather than pushing ourselves out of it. Like Gary Breaker, who's the founder of 10X Health, said, we are living in a comfort crisis. We are slowly suffocating ourselves to death with comfort by avoiding the hard things that are good for our health. Aging is our aggressive pursuit of comfort. So do you think, just thinking about that, do you think being a good leader in part of that is pushing you and others out of their comfort zones in order to achieve greatness? Or do you not think that matters so much? You know, I, th I think you need, it depends what it is, right? It depends what the, it depends what the goal is that you want, right? But I think if you are, I think if you're willing to, if you said that, like, if your comment is, if you want to achieve greatness, one, I think you need to define what greatness is right for each individual, because that would be different. But, um, but in order to achieve greatness, you need to recognize that there's gonna, it's going to require sacrifice of some sort, whatever that is, time, money, effort, energy, your people. Like there's, it's not going to be a, a smooth process. And it's being, it's, you know, we had a saying, we played with England, but it's being comfortable in that un discomfort, right? It's getting comfortable at being uncomfortable, really. 
that you know a recognition and appreciation that this is not going to be easy this is not going to be plain sailing but we believe in the message we believe in our the direction of travel and the the outcome is worth the hardship right but but the key is probably not focusing on on the goal all the time because you'll miss you'll miss the learning you'll miss the journey you'll miss the actual value in the process because it's the process that's actually the value once once you've achieved the target once you've won the league or you've i don't know got your world record or whatever it might be that's done <laughs> it's finished like the moment you've done it it's done and all that then happens is then somebody else tries to beat it or you've got the challenge of keeping it one or the other and if you don't really enjoy the process and the mechanics of it and learn from like how you can keep doing it repeatedly and what the great things are that that you do well and then equally what the things that you do not so well if you, if you don't if you miss all that then you've kind of missed the whole point of it in the first place yeah so one final question which is what i ask every guest who comes on is how would you like to be remembered how would i like to be remembered? well i've got three kids uh and they're probably my biggest joy and and also biggest hardship but you know definitely my greatest legacy <laughs> um so how would I like to be remembered? I think I'd like to be remembered as somebody that just, well, to be honest, I'd like to be remembered as the eternal optimist. Somebody that live life to the full. I always say life's for living, not for chilling. So, you know, had a go, rolled the dice and had some incredible experiences with people and memories that, you know, had an impact on me, on them, on the collective. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell people where they can find you online, where they can find Optimist Performance. Yeah, man. well, if they want to follow, uh, come get in touch. Our website is optimistperformance.com so, and .co.uk. So dive on there. And if they want to reach out to me, all the usual socials, but at ollyphillips11 on whatever it is, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Awesome, mate. Thanks, pal. Loved it. Great fun. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ollie Phillips. Um, really interesting insights into high performance from him and you know all things to do with transitioning from playing the professional game into uh, business and stuff like that. So if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast and also follow Ollie and support him however you can. And I will see you next week for another episode.